How many of you had damage this last week from the storm? Okay, good, good number of you. I want to pray for you. God, I thank you for your presence in our lives. Even amidst the storm, you are there. We pray that you would be with each of these folks, Lord, who have had damage to their homes, to their vehicles, to their property. Just help, help us all to get through this time. We pray that on the other end, uh, we can look back and see that you have kept your promise. For those who love you and who are called according to your purpose, that you will work all things together for the good. We trust that promise to be true. We just want to uh, see that evidenced in our lives as we try to love you and stay called according to your purpose. And so, Father, we pray for your grace. We pray that uh, you would just help us to be patient. I know there will be times already and in the days ahead that we'll be tempted to be impatient and we'll be tempted to be frustrated and and uh, just help us to honor you and our reactions, our words, our deeds. As we deal with the adjusters, as we deal with the contractors, as we deal with people that come knocking on our doors, Lord, uh, may we be a testimony of Christ's likeness. May our words give evidence to others that we're a Christian. And we will trust that uh, this, this will all be fine. And Lord, uh, we thank you for your concern for us. And we give it to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been referred to as the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, before you start guessing as to what sermon I'm talking about, I must tell you, it's not one of my sermons. <laughs> I know some of you were already started to think in that direction, but uh, I want to be humble and steer you away from that kind of thinking right from the start. It's not one of Dusty's sermons either. You know, Dusty's a good preacher, but it's not one of his. It's not one of Billy Graham's sermons either. It's not even one of the Apostle Paul's sermons. The sermon I'm talking about is Jesus' sermon, and we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded for us by Matthew and Luke in their Gospel writings. And if you're familiar with both of those uh, writings by those two fellows, you'll know that Matthew has a lot longer uh, coverage of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount than what Luke does. But I am sure that even what Matthew records for us in his writing is just a portion of what Jesus had to say that day to his listeners. It's always intrigued me how Jesus preached to multitudes of people without the use of a sound system. Have you ever thought about that? You know, he didn't have a microphone that helped him out. It didn't have a set of speakers that, that amplified his voice. Well, I think he understood sound quite well. 
And that shouldn't surprise us because he is the creator of all things. He's the source of all wisdom. It's not unusual for us to see Jesus in a setting in which he utilizes his surroundings to help project his voice to those who were listening to him. In Luke chapter 5, you may remember this story. Uh, He was alongside the Sea of Galilee. There was a number of people there that uh, was to hear him preach. And Peter is there in his boat, uh, cleaning his nets, actually. And Jesus asked Peter to let him get into his boat and take him out into the water just a little bit. And then Jesus preached from the boat back to the people who were on the seashore. And the water helped carry his voice to his listeners. Here in this particular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he has gone up onto a hillside. He has the people come close to him. He is higher in elevation than what they are, and his voice is more easily carried to them in this setting. This sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches to his listeners about the kind of life and the kind of attitudes that a person of God's kingdom should have. Mark Moore says this of the Sermon on the Mount, that it really is a portrait of Christ himself. If you want to know how Jesus lived his life, take a look at this sermon. I guess you could say it this way. He lived this sermon, he then preached this sermon, and then he has called us to try and live this sermon as well. I want to ask you, can we attain to this level of righteousness which we see in this sermon? The answer is certainly no. We cannot attain to the level of righteousness that Jesus is preaching about here. Uh, Every single one of us falls short of His glory and of His perfect will. And so we give thanks to God for His grace. We give thanks to God for His mercy. But that does not diminish our need to try and be like Jesus. I want you to know, if you try to live this sermon out in your life, you will look very different from the world. As John Stott put it, you will be counter-cultural. But I'm pretty sure that is what Jesus has called us to be. He has called us to be different from the world. And there's something else that I should tell you too. It starts here in the heart. This is what we give attention to first. If we try to clean up the outside of our life by ourselves, it's just going about it the wrong way. We must address the heart issue first. We must surrender our heart to Jesus. And then as he comes and takes over our life, he will help us address everything else. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, as we begin looking at this great Sermon, And we're going to be in this sermon for several weeks. Two weeks we'll be taking a look at the Beatitudes. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed, you, you know it means happy. In fact, if you look at these verses that follow, verse 3 through verse 12, it would almost look like these, this is a section of Scripture that is teaching us how to be happy. And that ought to get our attention. Every single one of us here want to be happy. But I think we'll find that Jesus defines happiness a whole lot different than how the world 
defines happiness. If the world was defining happiness for us, if the world was telling us how to attain happiness, it might read something like this. Happy are the rich. Happy are those whose insurance adjuster is generous to them. Happy are those who win the big game. Happy are those who climb the ladder of success. Happy is the man who's strong and macho. Happy is the woman who is beautiful and intelligent and independent. Happy are the famous. And happy are those who eat and drink and and they go for all the gusto. That's how the world would define happiness. That's That's the advice that the world would give to us, that if we are striving for happiness, they're saying, this is how you get it. But the world's happiness is like a roller coaster, up and down and up and down. If if we are attaining to these standards, then we're going to be happy. But but the moment we lose these standards, then we're not going to be happy. And, and, And the world's message to us is so deceptive. Jesus, though, on the other hand, is talking about a happiness that is based on a relationship with God. It's a a joy that cannot be taken away from us even when the circumstances get difficult. And so rather than, than our happiness level being like a roller coaster based on our circumstances, if we listen to Jesus, we can have this joy, this inner joy that cannot be taken away from us, even when times get rough for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's it mean to be poor in spirit? Let me read to you from John MacArthur's book, It's a book actually written on the Beatitudes, several hundred pages long. It's entitled, The Only Way to Happiness. And this is what he says about being poor in spirit. He says, this is the fundamental characteristic of a Christian. Becoming poor in spirit is the very first thing that must happen in the life of anybody who ever enters God's kingdom. Nobody ever entered on the basis of pride. The the doorway is very low and only people who crawl can come in. Paradoxically, we know there is a mountain to climb, heights to scale, a standard to attain. But sooner or later we realize we are incapable of attaining it. The sooner we realize it, the sooner we are on our way to finding the one who, can att- who will attain it for us. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't be filled until you are empty. You can't be worthwhile until you are worthless. Now, I want to speak for just a moment about that word worthless because I don't want you to misunderstand what he's saying there. To be poor in spirit does not mean that we are beating ourselves up and we are saying that we are no good and we have no value whatsoever. We have value. We are made in God's image and Jesus loved us enough to die for us. And so to him, we have great value. But in and of ourselves, we need to understand this level of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. We can't do that by ourselves. We can't reach that level. We are sinners. We are deserving of hell. And we desperately need Him. 
If we don't realize that, then we are not poor in spirit. In fact, the person who is not poor in spirit is one who is very high on himself. He may even think that he's God's gift to the world. He's God's gift to the church. And and if you have him on your side, then you're a pretty lucky person. That's the one who is not poor in spirit. But know that that is the one. uh, that's, That's not the attitude that Jesus has called us to. He's called us to a completely different attitude than that. He says through the the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, our confidence is not in ourself. Our confidence is in God. The, The person who is poor in spirit is really spiritually bankrupt. He knows that he has no good in and of himself. Rather, his goodness comes from God. Being poor in spirit is exemplified by the publican in Luke 18. You remember him? He's in the temple. He's praying to God. He doesn't even feel like he can raise his eyes toward heaven. And he's praying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he's contrasted by the one who is a Pharisee just a little bit away from him. And that fellow, is, he's thinking he's God's gift to the world. And he's saying, Lord, you're lucky to have me on your side. I fast three times a week. I pray every day. I tithe. I do this. I do that. And he's so filled up with himself. But I want you to notice which of those two went away that day from the temple blessed. It was the publican. The one who was poor in spirit. God's blessings are reserved for those who are not all about themselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are empty of themselves. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Let me read to you verse 4 from Matthew chapter 5. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, you talk about a paradox here. and you, you, you understand what a paradox is. I'll give you the definition of a paradox from Webster's Dictionary. It's a statement contrary to common belief. It's a statement that seems contradictory, unbelievable, or absurd, but that may actually be true. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 4. Jesus is giving us a paradox. He says, happy are the sad. Blessed are those who mourn. I read that and I want to say, what? What is he talking about here? Is Jesus confused? No, he's not confused. He's right on. This is what he's saying. Happy is the person who realizes their sin problem and they mourn over their sin and they confess that sin to God and they receive forgiveness from Him. That person is the one who will be blessed. That's the one who will be comforted. Let me read to you from Mark Moore's commentary about this very beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. He says, I quote, Jesus is speaking here of the mourning of repentance, not merely the loss of a loved one. 
It is true that Jesus is a comfort, that he binds up the brokenhearted, but that is not the context here. Following verse 3, recognizing our poverty, verse 4 calls us to repent from our sin, which caused that poverty in the first place. Such godly sorrow is a means of great gain, he says. But where are the tears at the altar? Who still mourns their own sinfulness? We have ample examples in the Bible of people weeping for the sins of their people as well as for their own sins. Often, he says, and hear this, he says, often evangelicals have made so much of grace that we have made too little of sin. What do you think about that? He says that evangelicals have made so much of grace that we have made too little of sin. Now, I'm one that likes to talk about grace. I, 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 we need God's grace. We can't live. We have no hope without God's grace. But let's not emphasize so much God's grace that we have forgotten that sin is a serious issue and we need to look at it with, with the eyes of Jesus. It is a serious issue. When it's our sin, it's a serious issue. I want, I want to ask you, when is the last time you mourned over your sin? Uh, for some of us, it's probably been too long. Our eyes are too dry. Our, our hearts are too hard. Some of us even have a hard time recognizing what sin is anymore. We have our ears tuned into the world. And the world doesn't want us to call anything a sin. The world would say, you know, that's judgmental. We need to be more tolerant. We need to be more open-minded. Well, I'm sorry. God will have the last say. And what He has said in His Word, He has defined for us what sin is. And whether we want to accept that or not, His Word is the truth. The world may say no. But if God's Word says yes, then it is yes. And I will be very clear on this subject since it is a very hot topic in our world today, and I have not addressed it in a very, very long time. Homosexuality is a sin, and God hates it. Period. He loves the sinner. Hear, hear me say that. He loves the sinner. He loves every single person on the face of this earth, and he wants them to come to repentance. But he hates that sin, and if it isn't repented of, there will be a day of judgment. Period. But I want to say in the very same breath, he hates all sin. He hates your sin. He hates my sin. He hates the sin of gossip. He hates the sin of lying. He hates the sin of pride and selfishness. He hates the sin of bitterness. He hates all sin. And Jesus died for all sin. And we should take all sin seriously and mourn over our sin. And as we seek forgiveness, Jesus says, you will be comforted. You will be forgiven. And that's what David said in the Old Testament. Psalms 32, 1 to 5. He said, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
through, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will con- confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you want to find happiness? Then learn to mourn over your sin and you will be comforted, Jesus said. Let me read to you verse 5. It says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. If you're reading from the King James Version, it says, Blessed are what? The meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, the world has a different mindset than Jesus. The world thinks meekness is weakness. But Jesus says just the opposite. Meekness is strength under control. Jesus himself was meek. He had the power as he hung on the cross to call call down 10,000 legions of angels to come to his aid. And yet he chose not to do that. He chose to be under control. He chose to go the way of the Father, to carry out the Father's will. He chose not to retaliate. Meekness is the lion that has been tamed. Meekness is the wild horse that has been brought under the control of the bridle. It's the person who is strong inwardly and he or she reacts with gentleness and self-control when they could wreak havoc. I was thinking about meekness and Tim Tebow came to my mind. I, I think Tim Tebow is a meek person. He's a good example to us in this day and age of meekness. He is a really strong person physically and so able to wreak havoc with those who have targeted him if he chose to act that way. I read his autobiography here a couple of two or three years ago when it first came out. Uh, And in it, and if you've read it, you've you've heard this story, you've seen it, you've read it, but... uh, It's one that just stuck in my mind. Uh, His coaches at the University of Florida had had an exercise that they would would often put their players through. And uh, Tebow, as a freshman coming into this high-powered university football team, uh, they put him on the end of one, one end of the rope. And on the other end of a rope, was one of Florida's strongest defensive linemen. And uh, they, they were simply to do tug-of-war, tug of one-on-one. And there was no line that you pulled the fella across and, and then the game was over. No, you, you did one-on-one against each other until one gave up and conceded. And Tim Tebow, and this, this was witnessed by the entire Florida Gator football team, Tim Tebow drugged that lineman all over a gym in that tug of war. Even to a point that he had lost his footing and he's on his face holding on to the rope, but he's unwilling to give up the fight. And he drug him all over that gym to a point that he, he, he backed himself up against the wall and the, the guy's bathroom door was there and, and this fella, as he's against the wall, uh, the other fellow on the end of the rope gets up and he starts 
pulling again. He's not going to give up this battle. And so Tim Tebow takes his foot and kicks the door open and drags this lineman into the bathroom after him. And he, he gets against the stall door and he kicks it open and he, he backs himself as far into the stall as what he can. And he takes that rope hand over hand and he pulls the lineman into the stall with him. And finally the coach calls it. That's how strong he was. And how strong he is. And yet, I'm thinking amidst all of this, this treatment that the media has given to him over these last few years, the unfairness, being picked on, he has not lashed out. He's had the strength to lash out. He could have wreaked havoc with these people, but he chose to be meek, to be under control. John MacArthur said this about meekness. He said, meekness means to be finished with me for good. I think that's why Tim Tebow can react to the persecution that he's received the way he has. He's finished with himself. He's second. And God is first. And you know what? We need more meek people today in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches, Not weak people, but meek people. People who have their strength under control. People who are finished with themselves. Let me read to you Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I'm wondering, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or are you hungering and thirsting after the things of this world? Only the hunger and thirst for righteousness will bring satisfaction to you. Jesus said, you will be filled up. You will be satisfied. But understand, this is not a one-time hunger. It's not a one-time thirst. Nor is it a one-time filling. We continue to hunger for more. We want more of His righteousness. We want more of Him. We thirst for more of Him. And as we hunger and thirst for Him, He fills us. It's a continually filling up of, uh, of, uh, of Him, of the Holy Spirit, of His righteousness. In fact, that's, that's how the whole life should be lived. As we become a Christian and we progress along in our Christian faith, we continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and He continues to fill us up. If you are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then you better seriously examine yourself to see where you are at with Jesus, and you should start praying that you, should have, that you can have this hunger and thirst for righteousness. As I studied this last week for this message, there is so much good information out there. I just, I, I've got things I want to share with you today from what I've read. I want to read to you from a military leader named Major V. Gilbert as he described the thirst he and his men experienced in the Palestinian desert in World War I. And as I read this, I thought, we really have no idea what thirst means. 
Here's a fellow who knows. I quote, Our heads ached, our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare, our tongues began to swell, our lips turned to a purplish black and burst. Those who dropped out of the column were never seen again, but the desperate force battled on to Sharia. There were wells at Sharia, and they had been un- and had they been unable to take the place by nightfall, thousands were doomed to die of thirst. We fought that day as men fight for their lives. We entered Sharia's station on the heels of the retreating Turks. The first objects which met our view were the great stone cisterns full of cold, clear drinking water. It took four hours before the last man had his drink of water. He says, I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on that march from Beersheba to the Sharia wells. If such were our thirst for God and for righteousness, for His will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit would we be? I don't know about you, but I need to hunger and thirst more for righteousness, for His righteousness. I had Matt McGee come up to me after the, the first service sermon, and we were talking about this, this idea of thirsting for righteousness. And, and we ended the conversation by saying, you know, what, what in the world could the church do in one day if all of its members really hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And yet, too often, instead of us hungering and thirsting for righteousness, what we're hungering and thirsting for is more stuff. More of this world and what it has to offer. And so much of the time, the world is what is distracting us from being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Our busyness distracts us from that. The TV distracts us from that. Our sin distracts us from that. All of our stuff and and our effort to acquire more stuff distracts us from hungering and thirsting for righteousness. David said it this way in Psalms 42, 1 and 2, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for Thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We need Him. As we thirst for Him, Jesus said, You will be filled. Let's pray together. Father, help us to take note of what Jesus had to say in the Sermon on the Mount about true joy, true happiness. May our ears be deaf to the world. May our ears be open to the words of Jesus. May we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we be finished with ourself. May we mourn for our sin. May we be gentle. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.